Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2 or your uh, phones. If you're using a Bible, the way to find Nehemiah is find Psalms in the middle and then go left. Yeah, go left about three books and you'll end up at Nehemiah, Job, Esther, and then Nehemiah. If you weren't with us last week, we were in uh, chapter one of Nehemiah, and you'll see the title up on the screen, A Courageous Faith, as we continue in this great story. Now, how many of you have ever or currently balanced a checkbook? Raise your hand. Hopefully everybody in the family, at least, (laughs) raises their hand. Balancing a checkbook, personal finance, I think most of us are familiar with that, and most of balancing a checkbook revolves around withdrawals, right? So many withdrawals, checks, debit, uh, automatic uh, deduction, uh, over online, whatever it might be. But what, and remember, my questions are very simple. What, when it comes to all these withdrawals, what is the other very important thing when it comes to personal finance? If we're making all these withdrawals, we also have to do what? Deposits, yes. I think there's a lot of people, including our government, that could learn from that, right? Deposits. And that is actually a great illustration. Uh, We'll use it often in marriage counseling or premarital counseling, but I'm using it today to help us understand how God works to develop faith in us. Because we're going to see, just like the title suggests, we're going to see Nehemiah's courageous faith today. And the question is, is faith, for example, something we just pray for, or is there more to it? And hear me, it's okay to pray for faith. I do believe God answers those prayers even in a moment. But if you really want to cultivate a true and courageous faith like Nehemiah, don't just simply pray for faith. Do what Nehemiah did. Remember last week? He was with God for four months, praying, fasting, planning, and then today we're going to see him go into action. In this book, Nehemiah gives us an incredible example of balance between prayer and action. But don't make the mistake of thinking all you have to do is pray for it. It needs to be cultivated. Courageous faith like Nehemiah, which is ours as well, comes from a close communion, a daily communion with God. It's an overflow. It's a a byproduct like all of the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, here's the Galatians 5 passage where we find those fruits of the Spirit. And notice what Paul says here. But the fruit of the Spirit... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then look at the next verse. They come if we live by the Spirit, if we keep in step with the Spirit. I love that. The Christian life is supposed to be a dance with the Holy Spirit, where we're keeping in step with Him, walking with Him, communing with Him. And then as a result, those fruits are ours, as well as those who we are in proximity to. So let us... Keep in step with the Spirit. Let us be like Nehemiah and let that faith that is so crucial to our life and the lives of those around us come from that close communion, that close walk with God. And you'll see another screen, another uh, slide up here. This is from two weeks ago. I, I showed you as we went through Ezra these means of grace that we'll see over and over through Nehemiah, these five means of grace. We, we saw them last week. We'll see them this week. And this is what Nehemiah did. This was that communion that he had privately and also, as we'll see, corporately with the people of God that led him to have this courageous faith, the work of God in him that overflowed 
in his life so that we, he could be as bold as we're getting ready to see him be. He could go in front of certain people as we're going to see. Because of these means of grace, they were present in his life. And you'll see them there. Continuity with God's people. That's so important that, that when Christ saves us as Christians, we connect all the way back through the Old Testament, all the way back through church history. We're part of this universal church that God has been saving men, women, and children for all of time. The spiritual separation, of course, the wall is the big building project of Nehemiah. And it was important, not separation to hide from the world, but distinctiveness for mission so that we could reach the world. And then you'll see the more common means of grace, the the worshiping of God, just like we did a few moments ago as we prayed, the Bible intake in the prayer. These were the means of grace that were so present in his life that overflowed into the courageous faith that we're going to see today and for the weeks to come. And here's our big idea that guides us through chapter two today. Today we will see three examples of Nehemiah's courageous faith as he begins to obediently initiate God's plan. So let us look now at chapter two. We're going to uh, read through here a few passages before we do, though, there's another passage I want to look at, and this comes from Esther. I've told you in the past couple of weeks that Esther was written just before this, a generation before Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is the most popular verse in all of Esther. You guys will know it, but she needed the encouragement of her cousin Mordecai, and look what he says to her. Remember, she's now queen. She's married to Artaxerxes' father. Artaxerxes is the king we'll meet today. She's married to his father, Xerxes, the king of Persia. And uh, the, the Jewish people are about to be wiped out. And look what her cousin encourages her with. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom as queen for such a time as this. And I wanted us to see that verse specifically today because that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing today as the cupbearer of the king. He recognized that God has put him in this position for such a time as this. So the first example of Nehemiah's courageous faith that we see is before King Artaxerxes, before King Artaxerxes. So we're going to read through the first eight verses of chapter two, but before we do, peek back to verse 11 of chapter one, just above it, just before it, and you'll, you'll remember from last week, as he's praying, he ends by saying, give your servant success today, on this day. So this prayer for those four months led up to this very moment where he knew that he would be going before the king to make this request about the wall. So let's begin in, in uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, so this is uh, March, April of the following year, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time, 
And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Wow, what a faith Nehemiah has. Now, just a few, uh, few things to point out in what we just read. Uh, you know the time. It was a, the fall, again, four months later from last week. So this is the spring, possibly the Persian New Year. Nisan was uh, the first month in the Jewish calendar, also in the Persian calendar. But because the queen was there, it may have also been a private affair. Persian queens usually didn't attend large banquets. And you see him come before the king. Now, it's interesting here because it tells us that before this time, Nehemiah was not sad in the presence of the king. What does that mean? Courtiers like Nehemiah, servants in, in, the, uh, in the throne room of, of the king, were expected to be smiling and happy all the time and not allow their emotions to come through. So scholars believe that these four months, although Nehemiah was heartbroken, he hid it until this day, specifically as part of his plan to hopefully get a hearing with the king. So on this day, he let his emotions, his brokenness over the shame of Israel and uh, in Jerusalem's city walls being broken, he allowed it to come through. Now, each of us have had this happen to us where we have to have a very serious conversation with someone in our life, uh, one that could go north or south. We don't know. Maybe it's a, something we have to confront them on. Maybe it's a question we have to ask them, like Nehemiah. And isn't it great in those moments when that person brings it up? It makes it so much easier for us to then go into that difficult conversation. And that's what he's hoping for here. That's, I'm sure, what he was praying for. And the, and the Lord blesses him because look what the king says. He notices it. Now, of course, on one hand, imagine yourself to be King Artaxerxes and the guy in charge of, of bringing your wine, making sure it hasn't been poisoned, is starting to look a little squirrely. You're going to wonder, right? You're going to say, hey, what's going on? What, what's wrong today? And, and it gives him an opportunity to ask. Now, the king's a smart guy. He's no dummy. He knows that Nehemiah has something heavy on his heart. So he, he says, what is it that you were requesting? But what scholars point out about Nehemiah that, that makes him an expert communicator in this very moment, Esther did the same thing, if you go back and read uh, the rest of that story, is he doesn't get political. He never mentions the city of Jerusalem here. He begins by hopefully tugging at the king's heart by making it personal. So he gets personal talking about his father's graves and avoids the politics. Remember, we talked about this last week. If you go back and read Ezra 4, remember Ezra and Nehemiah is one book originally. We find out in Ezra 4 that this same king stopped an earlier wall building project a few years earlier, right? So he does, he's, he's walking into dangerous ground here. He's got to be very careful, but look how the Lord blesses him. And the king says, what is it you're asking, right? He knows he wants something. He gives the request and the king was pleased to sit, send him. Now, you'll see the uh, parenthetical there, the, uh, the queen sitting beside him. Not sure what that means. Maybe the queen had something to do. Maybe he was able to talk to her first, and she softened the king up. We don't know. Um, the word here it tells us that this was the most important queen. So it could be his, his primary uh, wife, which was Dampsia, or it could have been his favorite 
queen from the harem that he had. Uh, we don't know. When I was earlier, I would read this, and I was somehow hoping it was Esther, like the queen mother, but that's not it. Uh, Xerxes, Artaxerxes' mom was not Esther. He probably knew her, but his mom was another queen. But nonetheless, uh, his, his uh, request is granted. And this is where it gets interesting because you think, hey, man, you're ahead. Just stop. Be thankful for that. He asked for two more things. It's like, man, the nerve of that guy. But really, this was a rare opportunity. He had to make the most of it. So each request that he makes is more and more of that courageous faith. And so we see him ask for letters for two very purposes, very important letters. One would be to the governors that are over back in, in Palestine, you know, where Israel was, uh, so that they know what's going on. Because as far as they know, the city is not supposed to be rebuilt. And this is now a change in policy. And if you go back to Ezra 4, what's interesting is when you see the words of Artaxerxes, he left himself an escape clause because Persian kings were known for once they made a decree, that decree could not be changed. And you can see that if you read Daniel, uh, Daniel in the lion's den account. But look with me at Ezra 4. I have it up on the screen. Ezra 4.21. These are the words of Artaxerxes. Uh, Again, probably a few years earlier. He says, Therefore make a decree that these men, the people in Judah, be made to cease, and that this city, Jerusalem, be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. So that was temporary. So he gave himself a future loophole to overturn it. And that's exactly what he does here. This is what God inspires him to do. So he asked for the letters to the governors. Then he asked for letters to uh, the keeper of the forest, because he was going to need timber and wood, not just to rebuild the wall, but also to shore up the Temple Mount fortress that was uh, right next to the Temple Mount, and even his own private residence. But what we need to see here, and what we cannot miss, is that very last uh, clause in verse 8. He says, The king granted me everything I asked for, but look what he knew to be true. The good hand of my God was upon me. That is great theology right there. Yes, he was before the most powerful king on the face of the earth, but he never forgot that he was always in the presence of the king of the universe who holds every king in the palm of his hand. So he gives God glory here. And he, again, he's writing his memoirs. He's writing in this journal, uh, praising God for what he and he alone did. Now, a few application points before we move on. Raise your hand if you want a faith like that, right? Who wants a faith like that? I do. And as we talked about at the beginning Faith is a byproduct of communion with God. So it's really never about my faith. It's always about the object of my faith. The same is true for you if you're a Christian. Don't focus so much on your faith, your faith, your faith. Focus on the object of your faith, God himself. And he, as a result, will give you the faith that you and I need. He'll strengthen and grow that faith to persevere through the brokenness that faces us in life, as well as challenges or ministry projects like Nehemiah is doing here uh, before us. A second thing that we see here is planning. I mentioned that, that Nehemiah gives us the perfect example of balance between prayer and action. But one thing that is so clear, his requests were so, so precise, so specific, so clearly communicated to the king, he was ready to go before the king. Imagine if he went before the king that day with vague generality. He really didn't know what he wanted to do. Uh, it would have been a disaster, but he was ready. He spent those four months not only praying, but planning, probably writing down exactly what he wanted to ask for the king if God gave him the opportunity. He was ready, and we need to be ready too in every area 
of our life. Look at this passage from Luke 14. This is the Lord Jesus, uh, and, and you'll recognize this passage, but I put verse 27 in there at the top so we know the context. It's about discipleship. It's about building the Christian man or woman, uh, the discipleship process, which we're all about here at the Church of Blue Ridge. Let's read this. Jesus says this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. This is so applicable to every area of our life. Yes, church ministry, right? Yes, mission opportunities that God gives us. But even in your own life as a family, even in your own discipleship, if you just take the context of this passage, God has saved you, yes, but if you're not intentional and in planning and setting goals and, and specifics, you won't grow. You, we have a role in our sanctification. We don't in our salvation. That's all God. In our sanctification, we have a part. It's still God's power, but we have to be intentional about our discipleship. But also in your family, there's room for this type of planning and communicating and setting goals and visions, but as a church too, and even as missional community groups, when it comes to our third space, when it comes to the mission component that God has called us to, that Pastor Robert's leading us in, this, this passage implies that we need to have the same type of planning. Be very specific and have a plan. Pray, yes, but also have a plan and execute that plan. We'll talk more about that too in the next section. And then finally, just communication, clear and specific. Clear and specific. If there's an important conversation that we need to have, let us take the time to write out the very clear and specific things that we want to ask or bring up. It's so important. Uh, and Nehemiah gives us a great example of that. So we've seen this first act of courageous faith before King Artaxerxes. The second one is before his fellow Jews. All right. So now we're going to see him make the trip from a uh, Modern day, uh, I think, Iraq, all the way to Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up in verse 9. We're going to skip verse 10 and save it for the final section. And then read 11 through 16. He says this, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that I was under to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, which is, which is, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. We'll stop there. Now, we've said many times the famous quote of William Carey, great person to study if you don't know who he is. He was the first modern missionary 
1792, he was an English Baptist, and he left to take the gospel uh, to India. And his famous quote, which I love, and again, we've said a few times here, expect great things for God, attempt great things for God. I'll repeat that because it sounds like it should be the other way. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And that's a great verse that came to my mind when I looked at Nehemiah. There was that balance again of faith and of action. Now, a few uh, things to point out here. You'll see in verse 9, he comes to the province beyond the river. That's a technical name for Palestine. That was a, they say that it was the fifth satrapy. That's what they called him. The fifth satrapy, the giant region, if you will, of the Persian Empire. It was broken up into these satrapies. And the king would have a satrap, who, like a vice president, who would be over that entire large region. And so that's probably who Nehemiah is coming to tell. Hey, there's been a change. I'm the new governor of Judah, right? Here's the letter of the kings. The king most likely sent these soldiers and military leaders with him, which was a very impressive show of force. It legitimized, indeed, that the king is behind this, that the king did write these letters. So he comes there, and then he makes his way to Judah. And there were some other uh, governors that found out the news that were governors of smaller areas like Judah. We'll talk about them in the next section, the final section today. But getting to verse 11, you'll see that he goes on this nocturnal mission, this nocturnal mission to inspect Jerusalem, to see what things are like. We know the wall was destroyed 150 years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar. No surprise there. I, put a, I got a map here on the slide above that you'll see this is what Jerusalem, it's a rough map, but this is what Jerusalem looked like back then. When I see this, I think of a turkey leg at the fair, because those are really good. But you'll see, um, he didn't go around the entire wall. He goes out of the valley gate. You'll see the valley gate there on the bottom left. He goes out, goes around the bottom narrow part to the water gate, and then essentially doubles back and goes back in the same way he came out. So he didn't go around the entire city, just a small part. And the reason for that is because that's probably the only remnants of the wall that was left. The northern part of the wall probably was non-existent. So he thought, well, let me go see what's left, see in the southern part if there's something we can work with. And the reason for that, too, is you'll see up north where the temple is. That was where Nebuchadnezzar would have attacked from. That was the siege point. If you wanted to take Jerusalem, you would attack it from the north. It, that's where... Uh, the land for you to lay your siege works would have been. There wasn't much in the south. It was steeper, and it was terraced out. So that wall was probably gone. Uh, you'll see where the temple is there. Really, back then, Jerusalem was very small compared to modern day. All it consisted of was the Temple Mount area and then the city of David, which is that southern narrow strip. Uh, they call that Ophel. That's the city of David. So that's what he does in this trip. He goes out to see what is going on. And once again, we have this second example of Nehemiah doing his homework before going and speaking to the people he had to speak to. He did it with the king. Now he's going to do it with the Jews themselves, the people who would actually be doing the work. So we get down to verse 17, and we have his speech. Now, uh, think of uh, maybe history, real actual history. I tend to use movies because we can relate with those a little bit better. We don't know history as well. But think of your favorite speech, like the kind of speech that a general would give or a president or some leader, either, again, a movie or maybe even in real life. It may be Braveheart. It might be Return of the King, which is one of my favorites. Or movies like that. That's kind of what's happening here. Nehemiah goes before the people, right? They're depressed. 
They're, they're in shame. We learned that last week. They live in a destroyed city. Everybody comes and goes as they please. These other governors who, who aren't Jews and could care less kind of have uh, the run of the land until Nehemiah gets there. We're going to meet some of those guys here in a minute. And he has this incredible role to encourage this people for the work, to rise up and rebuild the wall. And we get, I'm sure the speech may have been a little bit longer, but we get this beautiful two-verse speech here in verses 17 and 18. And, and look what he does. He, actually, I have it up on the screen. I broke it down into five parts. This is his five incentive speech. The first thing he does, which is so important, he identifies with the people. Look how he uses the second personal pronoun there. We, us, come let us build the wall. Notice how we are in ruins. He identifies. A good leader will identify with the people he or she is called to lead, that there won't be so much separation or superiority. So he identifies with the people. The next thing I love is he stresses the seriousness of the situation. He doesn't uh, sugarcoat it. I think we, that's, a, that's a danger we have, especially here in the South. We like to sugarcoat. Oh, it's not that bad. No, he, he tells exactly what's going on. They know. They already know, right? If, if he tried to sugarcoat it or embellish, they wouldn't have followed this guy. He was honest about the seriousness of the situation that they were in, and that's very important. Next, he's committed to definite action. Again, he's not vague. He's precise and specific, very important for leaders as well. This is what we're going to do. I've done my homework, all right? I've been doing it for four months or probably longer at this point. And even last night, I went out and inspected. This is what we're going to do. This is the plan, the course of action. People need to know what you want of them, what you expect of them. And then I think the most important, number four, he shares his testimony of God's grace. That was so important. He, he didn't hide the fact that this was God's mission. And the good thing about God's mission, they always are a success, right? Nothing that God intends to do fails. He always completes his mission, and he encourages them. And I'm sure he told story after story about how God miraculously provided for him to be there at such a time as this, to be their governor and to provide the resources. And then he shows them too, even, hey, here's the king's letter, right? Essentially what he's saying here is, hey, it's legal, all right? We were allowed to do this. It's legal. And look, that's a miracle in and of itself. God touched the king's heart, and, and he's given us permission to rebuild what he stopped a few years before. And then finally, as a result of all four of these, he encourages the people. You see that at the verse of, end of verse 18, uh, they say, let us rise and build. You can almost hear the cheer, you know, as the, the leader finishes his speech. They're like, yeah, you know, ready to go. Let's do this. And, and you see this language here at the end of 18. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. What's that telling us? These people were encouraged. Encouragement is the opposite of depression, right? Depression is like all the air coming out of a balloon. Encouragement is filling it back up. And God has used Nehemiah to encourage the people and to fill it back, fill their, their hopes back up so they were ready to obey God's will and rebuild this wall. So a few application points here. Look at this quote by Mervyn Brenneman. A Christian leader must encourage trust in God by leading in faith as well as in action. So important. In fact, uh, just to give him some credit, some of those five incentive, uh, the breakdown of the speech, basically, I, I got from him, and then this quote was in there. But it's so important as leaders, whether, whether it's leading in your home, leading in the church, and by the way, I believe we're all called to be leaders in some regard, that we lead in faith as well as in action, just like Nehemiah. 
the perfect balance. The second thing I want us to be reminded of, too, and we learned this in Acts. We talked a lot about it in our previous study of Acts. The mission belongs to God. The mission belongs to God. God was going to build this wall with or without Nehemiah. With or without the Jewish people, the wall was getting built. Why? Because it was God's will. This whole Bible we have is about God's redemptive mission, the rescue mission of the gospel. And this was a key part, a key moment in that. God was going to get it done. The same thing's true with the Great Commission. The Great Commission we've been given to take the gospel to the nations, it's God's mission. He's going to fulfill it. The question is, are we going to be obedient in joining him in his mission? That's what's before us as families and as a church. Are we going to be obedient in joining him? Just like Mordecai told Esther, if you don't do it, God's going to raise someone else, who, someone else who will. He's going to get it done. But are you, the question is, are you going to be obedient or disobedient? So let's always ask God to help us to be obedient and to be on mission. Let us also be encouraged, right? It's not on us. Success is not on our shoulders. It's on his. He will complete it. So a very good reminder for us. And then finally, what does Nehemiah provide these people but a fresh set of eyes? A fresh set of eyes is so good in our lives. Because when you're faced with a problem, like a broken wall, a destroyed city, maybe a destroyed marriage, uh, maybe brokenness in any area, you get so close to it. I get so close to it that sometimes the blinders are on, and that's why it's important to ask for help. That's why it's important to be part of a missional community group or, or maybe ask for counsel just to get a fresh set of eyes, another perspective on your life and on the broken walls of your life because they may be able to see something that you don't see and be able to encourage you in a way that you're not being encouraged. So uh, another great example for us from Nehemiah. He provided these Jews with a fresh set of eyes. So we've seen uh, the first two, before the king, before his fellow Jews, and then briefly, we're going to meet some guys. Before the opposition. We're going to meet a few people here. You're going to see their names throughout the book of Nehemiah. These three individuals, two of them, for the most part, are a constant thorn in the side of Nehemiah. And the reality is, there will always be opposition in this life. For those who are in God's uh, army, if you will, for those who are fulfilling his will, for us, the church, we will always face opposition if we're doing what God has for us to do. Why is that? Because God allows the opposition to strengthen us, to keep us dependent upon him as we are God's hands and feet. And so we're going to meet these men here in these few verses. So let's go back to verse 10, and then we'll uh, read verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite, the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, again, Nehemiah coming, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Skip to verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, again, Nehemiah's speech to the people, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Have you ever been part of a smaller traditional, maybe country, church, usually Baptist, but I'm sure it happens in other denominations, where you, as you're there for a little bit of time, you realize that like everybody's related to each other, and it's kind of weird, and you even get these little factions, and oh yeah, we've all been there. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. 
These, especially the first two men, Sanballat and Tobiah, we're going to see throughout Nehemiah. And we'll also see in coming chapters that both men were related by marriage to people in the priestly ranks of Jerusalem, which is why they could continually be a thorn in his side. Now, what's really exciting is archaeology has found all three of their names on various uh, uh, paper, on a silver jar in one case. Actually, yeah, uh, the Arab, Geshem the Arab. So these were real people. Just like with Acts, Luke would include names of real people. These are real people from secular history that archaeologists have found information. And we know that Sanballat and Tobiah were actually governors, like Nehemiah, of other provinces that were nearby. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north of Judah, and Tobiah was the governor of Ammon to the east of Judah. So they essentially had Judah surrounded. And before Nehemiah got there, they had sway in Jerusalem. They had a a political control that they were not wanting to lose. And now that Nehemiah has come, that's over. He now is the legitimate king-appointed governor of Judah. So they're finding out the hard way that someone else is in charge. Now, we know from history, too, that both of these men had children with Hebrew names, So scholars believe that they thought of themselves as Yahweh worshipers, but the reality is they were not. They were syncretistic pagans. They had been mixing Judaism, just like we'll see with the Samaritans uh, getting to the New Testament time. So these guys right away rise up and oppose this work. It is not in their interest whatsoever that Jerusalem be rebuilt. And so, again, we'll be interacting with them throughout. You're going to see what they do. But simply today, I just want you to see how they begin uh, psychologically trying to discourage the people, right? This, this thing called hope is so fragile. And if they can discourage them and undo the work of Nehemiah, the wall won't be built. And so you'll see there, they jeered, they despise at us. And then they even say things that aren't true. Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah had a letter from the king saying that they were allowed to build the wall. So what do we call that today? Fake news, right? Fake news, propaganda, lies used to discourage and and get people off of their mission and what it is they would otherwise accomplish. They're lying. You even see back in verse 10, they were upset that anyone would want to come and help out Israel, right? They just wanted things to stay the same. And and we see that even in the news today. Now, the Israel today is not this Israel. This was the covenant people of God in history. Today, we, the church, are the covenant people of God in history. But nonetheless, Israel's around for some reason, I believe, that God has. And I think we see some of that in Scripture. But isn't it funny, 2,500 years later, that Israel today is surrounded by enemies who doesn't want anyone to seek their welfare? It's funny how things never change. And the same is true for us, the, the covenant people of God the church. But finally, look at verse 20 and just a a few words about Nehemiah's response. He doesn't pull out King Artaxerxes' letter and see, hey, we're legal, right? He doesn't even bother with that. Look where his hope is. It's not in the king. It's in the God of heaven. And he tells them the God of heaven will make us prosper. So just get out of the way and shut up. How important in this moment was it for the leader to rise up? The people had been encouraged, now they're hearing these lies. Maybe they're starting to have second doubts or doubts or second guessing what Nehemiah said. If Nehemiah had led from behind here and not said anything, the wall project's over. But he gets up in the opposition's face. I just imagine his finger right in their face and he tells them that God will see us to victory. You get out of here. And look what he even says. You have no portion, 
no right. This is technical language. He's telling them that we, Israel, have historic right to this plot of land. You don't get out. Ralph Klein gives us the quote here to help us understand what he says in those words. He declares his opposition, he declares to his opposition, will have no share in Jerusalem, no claim to exercise jurisdiction or citizenship there, and no right to participate in the worship at the temple. And that way, I believe Nehemiah is a type of Christ, right? When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the salvation, there is no third option, there's no gray area. It's either you're in or you're out. That's it. And so as we think of the wall here, again, we think of that, that separation, that distinctiveness that's so important for the people of God. The gospel is the same way. Go all the way back to Noah and the ark. You were either on the boat or you weren't. And you wanted to be on the boat. Jesus Christ is our ark. Are you on him? Are you in Christ? Because you don't want to be left on the outside. If you go through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus several times talk about gnashing of teeth, right? The people on the outside. We're going to look at a, a little bit of a longer passage here from Luke 13 that I think is so important at this moment as we want to kind of bring this back to the Gospel. Look what Jesus says to his audience there. Let this speak to your heart too. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, on the outside, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. The gospel is right here in front of us, even with a wall project 2,500 years ago. One application point I just want to point out is, you know, this is why church membership is so important here at the Church of Blue Ridge. This is why we don't rush it. This is why we have such a, a process. It's just important to have that wall of distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Because there's some very important things on the line. One is church unity and church purity. If we are just number hungry and want to let anyone in and kind of take the borders or boundaries down, soon we won't have a church anymore. And that, unfortunately, is what's happening all over the country in most churches, I would say. They're not, they're not churches. They're something else. It's, it's important, and it's also important for something else, mission. If we don't have distinction, we won't know who to reach with the gospel. So separation in this way, biblically, is about mission, not about hiding out from the world, but knowing who it is we have to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, a long time ago, there was a family early on, you wouldn't know them, I wouldn't say their names, but... They wanted to join the church without um, doing a very important requirement that we have. And we lovingly said, man, we love you guys. You're great. But we're not going to compromise on this. This is a requirement of church membership. And they left, and we wished them well. But we cannot compromise. And nor could Nehemiah uh, when it came to the opposition, who wanted to be included even though they weren't the people of God. So really important for us. Uh, Invitation time. We're going to 
The real invitation really is for the Lord's Supper. We're going to transition from this time of preaching into the Lord's Supper. And that's where I want us to, to think. You know, if you're here today with us, you're not sure where you are with Christ. As Robert gets up here and leads us in this very important time of worship, he's going to do what we call fencing the table and make it very clear uh, that this is for those who are on the inside, who Christ has saved. And so, uh, again, he'll tell you, let it pass on by, but, but allow that to stick out in your mind. I'm lost. I'm on the outside. And listen, we don't know when Christ is going to come back, and you don't know when your last breath will be. Don't put off the day of salvation. Even today, repent and believe the gospel. We will stop what we're doing this morning after the service and talk with you. Come and find one of us or any time this week. That's so important for us. But for those of you who are believers, for the church, again, we're taking this wonderful time. And go all the way back to some of the very first comments I said with Galatians 5. Are you in step with the Spirit? Or have you tripped on your own feet and you're on the ground? As you take this time, again, of grace, uh, and, and as we're, you have an opportunity to pray and kind of inspect your life, like Nehemiah inspected that wall, ask that question, is, is my life in shambles? Are my walls and gates burnt down? And the good news is we're under grace. Just confess, celebrate what he's done. But again, come and find one of us. We will be glad to come and get our hands dirty in rebuilding the walls of your life. Not just us as pastors, but as missional community groups and as a church. And a few final housekeeping things before I pray. Uh, I, I changed the preaching schedule a little bit, so it's going to affect your cell group reading this week. So instead of just reading chapter 3, Look at chapters 3 and 4. 3 is a, as we'll see next week, 3 is just a long list of each family unit and where they built along the wall. So we'll look at some things from it next week, but I'll primarily be preaching from Nehemiah chapter 4. So just make sure you interact well with Nehemiah chapter 4 in your cell groups this week. So a little bit of change to the reading plan. And then finally, in two weeks, uh, the teaching pastor from the church at Cherrydale, Matt Rogers, will be with us, and he'll actually be bringing the sermon that day. So make sure you could be here August 5th as uh, Pastor Matt comes and brings the message from Nehemiah. You're not going to want to miss that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you one more time, at least in regards to the sermon, giving you glory and praising you, even just for this day, the day that we could come together corporately and worship you. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit to save those of us who are saved, to bring us on the inside of what it means to be the people of God, on the inside of your wall, making us distinct. Remind us today that we are light. We're not in the darkness anymore. Let us put away the works of darkness and let us submit obediently to the work of light, which is the work of taking the gospel to our neighbors, to our family, and ultimately to the nations, Father. Uh, just bless us today. And Father, if there's anyone in here, which I'm sure there are, men, women, children who don't know you, oh Lord God, break through the, the darkness and the brokenness of their sinful lives and their sinful heart and open their eyes to the gospel of grace. Draw them out as you so graciously have done to us, those of us who are saved. Draw them out and give them the ability to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even today, Lord, even today. Thank you that we have the privilege and honor of participating in the Lord's Supper today. Bless this time as we continue to worship you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.